everybody. Welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. And in this episode, we're going to do episode two of the natural history uh, of that uh, we've been doing with NPR. And uh, I'm joined by Lucas. Hello. It's usually of carpets and coffee, but uh, here we are. Uh, we're going to jump into it because... Lucas is the Aspidites guy. He has the Aspidites <laughs> bug and uh, yes. black-headed pythons. Wow. I mean, such an iconic species for Australia. Um, you know, I, I've, I've had uh, two of them in the past. I've worked with them. Very different uh, in my experience than, uh, say, a carpet python. Um, just in the way they look, the way they act, uh, certain things they do. Um and I was lucky enough to find one in the wild, uh, in the Northern Territory, uh, somewhere around Mount Bundy. So, um, cool. but uh, <laughs> that's very, awesome. very cool. Yeah. Dream come true uh, to uh, to be able to see one of them. Not too big, very uh, chilled uh, animal. Um, yeah, it was a good time. Um, but uh, I, I, I have as much as I love Australian reptiles, uh, the blackhead is like the last one on my list to, uh, to get back into. I don't know why. That's but, so uh, interesting to me, especially cause you've had some. So what, what, what was not to like, man? I can't relate. <laughs> uh, it's not that I didn't like them. It's just, uh, I don't know. They're, they're, they're one of those reptiles that, uh, sort of, there's a lot of uh, well, I, I'm hoping that uh, this episode will uh, shine some light onto some of the misconception about these mm. animals. I know Owen swears that they're cannibalistic, right. uh, you know, That's just exactly things like that. What I was thinking, misconception <laughs> is is right, and I completely agree, man. They they are iconic, and and they're so unlike almost all of the Australasian pythons, you know, the only thing that is even remotely close is the Woma, of course. Um, it's, uh, Aspidites mate, if you will. But, <laughs> you know, it, you mentioned it earlier. I, I have just become absolutely fascinated with this species over the past year or so. And, um, you know, by no means an expert, but I, I kind of just spend all my free time now researching them and, and trying to learn more. So hopefully I can be of some value during this episode and geek out about these cool snakes. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, uh, so we're going to go through, uh, you know, just different, uh, things, uh, about them, uh, as far as, uh, you know, taxonomy and their distribution, their environment, uh, what they, how they use the habitat, uh, their diet, uh, description of them. Uh, we'll talk about the weather, the the, the areas that they're at, uh, breeding in the wild, interesting behaviors, and then to tie it all up in a nice little bow, we're going to talk about how we would set it up um, and set them up to keep them in captivity. And that's the whole point of the natural history episodes: right. is that uh, it gives you an insight into what makes them tick in the wild. And ultimately, that will make you uh, keep them better in captivity. So, absolutely, um, that evidence-based herpetoculture framework. Let's get it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, all right. I'll, I'll sort of start at the beginning in uh, taxonomy. That that thing that sort of everybody loves to hate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, in this case, it's uh, not nearly as complicated as with some of the other snakes we like. <laughs> no. Yeah. So they, uh, you know, uh, blackheads uh, belong to the uh, to the genus Aspidites and they are endemic to Australia. I guess there could be 
there could, could be possibly be <laughs> a remote possibility that you could find blackheads up in the lower portion of Papua New Guinea. I sure do uh, wonder, you know, our good friend Nick Mutton always loves to remind us that 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 body of water there is a very recent phenomenon. So I guess the <laughs> yeah. question is in the Pleistocene, would they have had a reason to to be over there and do they remain? But uh, no recorded sightings, that is, but right. maybe not a very heavily populated area either. So, <laughs> yeah. so I guess as of the time of recording this podcast, uh, we are going to go with uh, Aspidites being uh, <laughs> endemic to Australia. And, as far uh, as we know, yes. <laughs> there yeah. is the uh, the two species, um, and we're talking Aspidites melanocephalus. Um, <laughs> Somebody's going to tell us we're wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be wrong, of course. Uh, you let the Philadelphia guy say, pronounce stuff, it just it never goes good. Yes. Um, Aspidites melanocephalus. Aspidites, of course, translating to shield bearer in reference to their large symmetrical head scales. And melanocephalus translating pretty directly to blackheaded, which is why we <laughs> see that for a lot of different animals in the animal kingdom. So, right. There we go. Well so, named. Uh, it actually makes sense this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's no mistaking their, their blackhead. Um, I guess that what, that is what makes them so iconic. Uh, I don't, I can't think of really any Python that sort of has this, you know, uh, feature except the walma but again the walma right. has more of that uh orange to yellow uh head uh and uh i don't know what's your thoughts on why they have the black head oh boy that's that is a really good question i you know we've all heard the th the uh the herpetoculture theories right so you know you hear people claim that they just stick that head out of a burrow to uh warm up really fast you know black pigment can can soak up heat a lot quicker um that's a theory uh, i've read in one book that particular author uh was speculating that maybe it helps them get their neurological function up and running really quickly when they're leaving a hole so that they can have snake thoughts faster and then there, there's the other camp that uh thinks that it's more something like when you're hunting in burrows underground, if you're coming at something with that, that really jet black dark head, maybe in those low light environments that makes it even all the more difficult to, uh, to see you coming. But it's interesting because both the blackheads and the Wilma's hunt in a similar manner. Um, right. And both utilize those burrow systems, but only one of the two has a black head. So why is that? That It's a really good question. I don't think we know. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if it ties into their environment because when you look at, um, when you look at the blackheads environment, as opposed to the Walmas environment, um, at least the pictures that I've seen, it seems like, you know, um, the Walma has more of that, uh, sand spin effects hmm. and some dead, trees or something <laughs> whereas a blackhead is uh basically like a woodland environment uh you know like a, a very dry type of woodland sure. environment woodlands um, rainforest margins spin effects grasslands i mean it's kind of tricky when we're breaking down species like this that exist on the entire east west gradient of a large yeah. continent because yeah. you know they're gonna inhabit a, a pretty wide range of different uh 
ecosystems and habitats, but you know, that just speaks to, to their, their resilience and, and their ability to thrive in various different habitats as well. Absolutely. They seem to be, uh, more, um, a little more generalized than say the Walmart Python. And yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, they, they certainly seem to, uh, rely less on the presence of those burrows. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure we've touched on it on one of the shows. There's that wonderful paper by Dr. Brutton talking about how the presence of burrows is the number one thing for habitat suitability for Womas. Um, and, and I actually asked her if that's applicable to blackheads as well. And she said, no, not really. She said, um, you know, it seems to me like blackheads, uh, really relate more to rocky outcroppings and rock crevices and things of that sort. So, you know, right. maybe they do spend a lot of time in, in more, uh, rocky outcroppings and things of that nature. Yeah. 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 I, <clears throat> being in the, uh, in, in the environment, um, I would definitely see where that is. Uh, it definitely didn't look like anything that I saw Womas would be, would be in or from any pictures uh, that I've seen of wild Womas. I mean, I, I, I think there may be areas possibly where they overlap, but I, I think right. that's sort of a gray area. Um, but, uh, right. I believe that does, that does happen. Um, 80 mile beach comes to mind as, as an area where blackheads and Womas, uh, are known to, coexist but i'm not sure to to what degree they you know have niche partitioning or, or anything like that you know right i'm not sure how much they're really just like elbow to elbow you know hanging out but <laughs> right yeah, yeah I, I i guess as we go in we'll get more into the diet and i think that's really where yeah. wilma's and blackheads sort of separate uh, but uh so basically yes. you have two species within this um you know uh uh, genus Aspidites. Yeah. And I, as from, from everything that I've read, I don't see anything that sort of wants to separate, say the East from the West. They were initially described by Kraft in 1864 as Aspidiotes, A-S-P-I-D-I-O-T-E-S, melanocephalus. Okay. And then a few decades later, uh, Boulanger re-spelled the Aspidites that we're familiar with now. So that's really been the only change since the 1800s. Um, wow. Yeah. Which, which that's is pretty crazy. remarkable, especially when you consider how much, uh, how volatile the taxonomy is with, with some of the other Australian pythons. So, yeah. you know, um, whether <laughs> there is sufficient, uh, divergence between Eastern and Western populations to warrant, uh, like a separate taxonomic designation that's not really known. Um, but nobody has come forward to suggest that that should be the case. Um, right. I think that it's more thought of that they, uh, just experience maybe a, a little bit of different, uh, phenotypic, uh, uh, you know, different phenotypes across that, that wide gradient, but not necessarily anything particularly different. Um, right. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So the, uh, I don't know if anybody's done the research either because there, that's one thing with blackheads that I have been finding consistently is that not a lot of lot stuff's of been done. No, not 100%. a lot of stuff. Um, and I, I think the reason for that is, um, from some folks that I've talked to in Australia, it sounds like their, their research budget is very focused on 
things that are that are hurting and kind of the consensus is that blackheads are doing just fine. So, you know, why, why right. put money into studying those? They're, they're all right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah there's not whereas, much there. whereas, uh, in, in, in relation to that, right. The Woma Python, uh, gets a little more love because right. I think they're a little more, um, habitat specific. And as mm-hmm. their barrows and whatnot are, are disappearing or the animals right. that, make the barrows disappear exactly uh, it becomes a little yeah. more difficult uh, for them to uh, to survive and um it, it sounded like too like there was a period of time where people just really weren't even sure um you know what was going on with the woma so they did invest a lot of time and resources to actually get to the bottom of like are they actually you know endangered or do they just live a life history where we we don't encounter them as often as maybe a blackhead that you know you see all the time crossing the street (laughs) right (laughs) so it's interesting for sure yeah i uh i was um the other thing that uh it was it's always been said that every any time since i've learned about blackheads that they lack heat pits right and I think the confusion that uh, comes in with that is that their pits are, are the labial pits are actually covered by scales, um, right? Which so maybe you can yeah dive uh, into that. Well, like you said, I mean that's kind of the first fun fact that everybody likes to bring up about um, both of the Aspidites py- pythons, which is that they're the only species of pythons with no external labial. Uh, heat sensing pits. Um, but there seems to be uh, an, another, you know, thought that perhaps they do indeed have the ability to sense heat. Uh, maybe those those organs are covered by a scale. And then uh, I have also heard from folks that there may indeed be an external heat pit on the very tip of the the rostral scale, um, which uh-huh. kind of overhangs uh, the, that top jaw, and you can kind of see an indentation in in pictures. You know, it, it is a visible little dent there, but I don't know that um, the research has been done to publish that finding. Right. But but it is certainly something that that a lot of people that work with the species acknowledge and right. um, you know thoroughly believe that's what that is and and uh it makes sense right you know we have a we have a semi-fossorial species of python here that um unlike all its other australian python friends just decided to kind of evolve to become almost a more basal design and and dig um right and you know if you had a big face full of pits you'd be plugging them up with sand all the time so that's not too good um (laughs) yeah don't need that but but it does seem safe to say that despite the absence of those really easy to see, you know, big holes that we're used to, they, they still can sense heat in that manner. Um, they are capable of that. Yeah. And I think there was some thought that, um, they may not, um, uh, need that, uh, because they're, uh, they, they eat mostly reptiles, right. Uh, cold blooded animals. So they don't need that. Uh, it would seem less important. Right. Although, if the reptiles right. they're eating are doing their job, they're going to be warmer than the surrounding environment too. So, correct. You still yeah. pick them up a little bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's yeah, I, yeah. It's uh, and and you know that that's something that uh, you know, 
that I've learned as of the past couple of years is that uh, Womans and Pythons actually dig. <laughs> you know, how which, cool is that? I mean, it just blew my mind when I saw that. You know, they are truly the only two that are known to to do that, just in active excavation. Um, yeah. in, in the entire continent and, <laughs> or at least for pythons. And, right. um, you know, that's why I, I really, I truly believe the, the Aspidites genus that, you know, there's just so many things that set it apart. Um, that being a really big one. Um, so, you know, you hear that perhaps they tend to enlarge existing burrows with that, that digging strategy more often than they dig kind of their own thing from scratch. Um, right. but it, it, it sounds like they do both, you know, they're certainly capable of creating a new, um, subterranean retreat if they need to. And, and you kind of see the way they do it. It's, it's pretty fascinating to watch. They yeah. use basically their bottom jaw as a shovel and kind of angle their neck in a J shape and, and like really jerk back and pull a bunch of material backwards with them. It's, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a there was a picture I, I found uh, that uh, had a black head basically doing that digging in some kind of uh, pipeline, right, or something. Right. It was yeah, and uh, I was like, wow, look at this. Because at that point, I only I only thought that Wilma's uh, did that, but uh, it turns out that right. uh, it looks like the blackheads do you know just the same thing with with the same mechanic as well, and and that's such a cool picture. Um, that was the first published observation of a, a blackhead digging in situ. Um, but I think it's something that people have known for a long time they were capable of doing. And just more recently right. in the past decade, academics were like, well, we should publish that. So <laughs> you know, now we can see these pictures on Google Scholar, which is great. <laughs> yes, yes, 100%. Yeah. Um, the one thing I couldn't find is, and I know I've heard um, – Nick and Justin, probably Scott too, talk about this, but um, whether they're a more basal form of a python or if they're actually right. more evolved, did you find any info on that? I'm still, I'm still looking in that regard because I, you know, that's definitely something that I'm also trying to get to the bottom of. When I was, you know, first getting into Australian pythons, what you hear is that. What I heard most often was that blackheads and womas are, are primitive, right? And that yes. they just kind of never got the memo to grow <laughs> right. pits and arboreal <laughs> tails and do all that kind of business. But but I've also heard from other people that perhaps new evidence suggests that they are not that, um, that in fact they could, maybe it's not a matter of them being more or less primitive, but just they just evolved along a different a different, you know, branch entirely, um, right. where they essentially took on, uh, the phenotype of something that would be more traditionally seen in more basal lineages, but not necessarily that they themselves are primitive. Gotcha. Um, but Which makes I, sense. I have, yeah, it does. Right. I mean, when you're trying to carve out your niche, where they're, where they're at, you know, there's a lot of stuff everywhere else and they're kind of the only thing doing what they're doing. So, um, right. I, I don't know, uh, if it's most accurate to say that they are more evolved because what that insinuates to me is that they used to have heat pits or something right. of that nature and evolved them away. It might not right. be 
a question of that. They may have just never had them in the first place, um, right. but evolved in other ways. So, so long story short, I don't know. But hey, yeah. <laughs> if anybody has, knows where that paper is, please send it my way because yes, you know, people talk about it a lot without uh, without a paper to back it up. So <laughs> I'm not right. sure. <laughs> right. So we're, we'll so I, and, you know I I only bring it up because I know a lot of times this comes up and right. sometimes there can be arguments and people debating it back and forth. So I, just I think what's most record. fair to say is that however they ended up here, they adopted a body plan. And a life history more in line with perhaps a more primitive version of pythons, whereas other snakes took to the trees and, you know, evolved to right. fill, fill those niches, semi-arboreal, arboreal snakes and whatnot. So, you know, do, do with that as you will. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it's, it's, it's actually kind of, it fascinated me that you can find five species of python in that one area of the, you know in the northern territory and where we were at all sort of doing their own thing if you will you know yeah yeah no so. it's incredible <laughs> although you know even now i'm still thinking of like i always have nick's voice in the back of my head for some reason <laughs> i'm imagine, i'm imagining when he tells me about like you know, well, I bet the ancestor all these pythons with something with a prehensile tail, uh, red babies, and <laughs> looked something like a carpet python, didn't it? You know, so like, if that truly is the uh, the common ancestor to what became all of the Australasian pythons, then Wombas and blackheads definitely went a different direction from that. So yeah, maybe they uh, are more evolved. I don't know. Hundred <laughs> yeah, percent. Time will tell. I Time guess. Will uh, tell. <laughs> Maybe that'll be something you could work on in the future to figure out. <laughs> yes, me and my time machine. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you will. You will travel to Australia and do some research. There you go. Um, <laughs> so uh, basically, uh, the description of the blackhead. Um, you got uh, you got basically a snake that is uh, uh, you know has this blackhead that uh, seems to go down <laughs> to to their neck area. Um, I don't see any type of uh, variants on the black head. I don't see, right. you know, they seem to all sort of have the same look as far as the black head. I think sure. where sort of the, um, differences may come based on locality. Um, and you know, state there is a, there's a thought that, you know, uh, out to the West that they're more of a, a cream to what we would call white in the hobby. Uh, and, uh, base color whereas out on the east coast or you know as you go more to the east it has more of that uh classic australia sand type of uh, yeah a little bit more color, color, you know? a little more yeah. dirty um yeah. right yeah and and that is that is totally true i think the where you, the only where uh excuse me the only place you see variation in terms of the head is how far back the black extends down the neck um, uh -huh. I do notice some some blackheads tend to have more or less than others, um, which is kind of interesting. I think it actually looks really cool when that black extends maybe almost like further towards that first those first couple bands. Um, right. But, you know, you also see ones where it seems to kind of cut off right at the base of the head. So maybe a little bit of variation with that. Um, like you said, we often hear the Western specimens uh, can be a little bit more 
light in their base color. Maybe they have a little bit higher contrast with their bands um, than some of those eastern specimens that get a little bit more of a wash over them. Um, right. Maybe a little bit more of like a um, brownish, yellowish brown uh, base color. Um, however, uh, it is interesting, you know, certain authors, the Barkers in particular, kind of went out of their way to to write that although that is what people tend to say, we haven't really noticed that. Um, right. So maybe there is a little bit of debate there as to how different the forms are and, and whether they are um, different like that always, you know, or, or right. maybe it's more of just kind of something that we that we like to talk about in the hobby. But what I did find really interesting is that there there is sometimes a different in scale count between Westerns and Easterns. So um, it says most Western Australian specimens just have one L'Oreal and no subocular scales, uh, while specimens from Northern Territory and Queensland have two to four L'Oreal scales and one to two subocular. So there is an actual tangible difference there, uh, <laughs> albeit just a couple scales different, but you know, right. maybe that matters. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but maybe, uh, we should say what are the Lord, what is a L'Oreal scale? Uh, yeah, for- we should. <laughs> uh, and I am finding that out now. <laughs> the L'Oreal scale is located just in, it's just about in between the eye and the nostril on the face. All right. And then your, Subocular scales, I'm guessing, go right under the under eye. the eye, yeah. And that is correct. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. So there is a little bit of of at least measurable difference there, but again, nothing that anybody has found substantive enough to try and call things different species or subspecies or anything of that of that nature i i would wonder i i would be curious and i didn't get time to do this to sort of um look at i did it with a few of them on there but i really didn't have any uh, type of locality looking ones that were more of the western look of what we say in the hobby Mm. um but I would be curious to see what this the, the environment looks like as far as the, you know, where is that animal spending its time? And is that color because of, you know, camouflage, if right. you will, you know? Absolutely. That, that would be my guess. That, that's what I would think. But I don't know. Yeah. More work needs to be done. hundred <laughs> <laughs> yeah. percent. Right. Yeah. And you do also kind of have that, uh, people tend to say that the Western stay a little bit smaller and that the larger uh-huh. specimens are, uh, Eastern and, and that could be true. Um, but again, that's, that's not in the academic literature, but it is what you hear. Right. Um, so right. of course you, you would expect there to be some difference in size. I mean, again, we're talking about the entire length of a continent, so there's probably some differences <laughs> just depending on right. where you're at. Um, sure. I would imagine diet probably plays a factor into it. I would think as you go further out west, it may be more difficult to come across a meal as mm. opposed to living more towards the east. Um, I don't For know. Sure. Just, yeah. 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 Just the thought. But 
Um, size wise, they seem to be in the five to six feet range. Um, for some reason, I thought they were bigger than that. Well, they, if you judge by U.S. captive specimens, they're enormous, <laughs> the nine to ten foot obese monsters. Okay. So, um, yeah. no, uh, yeah, from from my research, uh, it sounds like in situ adults average about five to seven feet. Um, yeah. You do have those colossal recorded, you know, maximum size quote. Uh, specimens at around 9.92 feet and that was reported in 1981 um and then like like we were just saying some some people claim those westerns tend to stay closer to around five to five and a half feet um so fair to say regardless uh whether there's a difference in Easterns or Westerns, they definitely should not be as big as a lot of people have chose, chosen to keep them in captivity. <laughs> yeah, which we'll get into that with diet and all because it probably plays a big role in uh, right. In, in when that, you hear yeah. blackheads referred to as large snakes, you know, like, oh, you can't get one of those. Those are huge. You know, well, yeah. sh- should they be? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it, actually, if uh, if the listeners want to reference this, uh, I'm going to throw it out there that uh, there was a video. It was called Herp in Cape York, Australia, Part Two, and it was uh, by the natural uh, herp keeper. And um, uh, there's a there's a part in that they they find a blackhead, um, and that would that environment is very similar to the environment that we found the blackhead that we saw. Um, basically like a dirt road, <laughs> uh, probably <laughs> not as, dirt, as, though. <laughs> it's not just any dirt. I mean, yeah, that's Australia. That beautiful dirt. red dirt. Yes. <laughs> um, for some reason, I think our dirt road wasn't really as, as uh dirt as this Cape York dirt road, but, uh, um, I think as you get into up into the Cape, it gets, uh, it gets a little rugged up there, but, um, <laughs> basically grass line on the side and then a tree line after that. And sort of just like, uh, you know, uh, basically just like yeah. a woodland nice little type l- of margin right there yeah yeah exactly that, that looks nice and snaky because you can kind of crawl out on the road to warm up and then get back into your cover and in the in the brush there that's a nice spot yeah yeah, yeah. um and basically matt somerville laid down on the road <laughs> and sort of referenced uh the size of the snake because he said it was the biggest blackhead that he ever saw so i'm gonna say maybe but do matt, we know how maybe, tall matt somerville is I don't. Oh, I'm gonna no. say that he's <laughs> that he's probably maybe five to six foot, and you would say that's probably what maybe an eight foot snake, maybe seven to eight foot, depending on the size Could of. Be. That. Yeah, I guess a lot's riding on the size of Matt here. Uh, but judging from that picture, I, if we're saying Matt's like you know, a five nine guy, you know that that might be a six and a half foot snake, eight seven. Yeah. Either way, yeah, the I one. Mean, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 I was going to say the one that we found was probably maybe I would say maybe a, a four foot would be my would be my guess. Maybe. Nice. Uh, what I do notice, though, even if if that snake next to Matt in this photo, even if that is seven, maybe even eight feet, if Matt's a particularly tall guy, uh, it's slender. It is not chunky. Uh, yes. <laughs> so even yeah. at that, what you would consider a colossal find in the wild, that's a slim snake. Yeah. You know, their their build is almost more of a, a colubrid proportion than, you know, 
what we visualize as a Python proportion. So that's something to keep in mind for sure. Yeah. Just on a side note, I noticed that Matt's herping and flip-flops. <laughs> yeah. In Australia. That's Who herps and flip-flops? <laughs> no, you anyway. got to have the Crocs. <laughs> yeah. So basically, uh, they're, they're found as far as their distribution. Um, they're basically found through the top third of Australia. It includes Western Australia, Northern Territory, and Queensland. Right. Um, they're found uh, inland in areas of the Northern Territory in Queensland, why somewhat restricted to the coastal areas in, in uh, WA. Um, yeah, it, it's predominantly like a tropical distribution in Western Australia. Um, and across that entire range, right, like we were saying, it, it inhabits such a wide variety of habitat types um, throughout the Kimberley regions, you know, the coastline, Cape Range, um, the Pilbara. There's, there's so much different stuff along that that entire gradient that they uh that they call home so not a, yeah. not a typical snake where you can just say like desert you know it's like, <laughs> yeah it's a whole and continent what, and what i what i've read is that they they, they don't seem to be found in too like an arid type of environment right right exactly it seems like they're more semi-arid to woodland grassland kind of stuff um, it is interesting. In 1967, there was a report that uh, the black-headed python occurred as far south as the northern wheat belt region, um, but there have not been any confirmed specimens from that area in more recent decades. Um, you know, we don't hmm. think of them being that far south, um, but, you know, perhaps they were at one point um or it's all bs i don't know uh, <laughs> and uh, there was um the aboriginals in the walunguru i'm probably butchered that sorry community claimed that uh the black-headed pythons could be found in the rocky hills uh surrounding that particular area and there was actually uh a specimen found near mount Liebig in uh the red center during a flooding event in 1988 um so huh. Some interesting little one-offs that might suggest blackheads occur more broadly than we know of, um, but who knows? Maybe it was very lost. <laughs> <laughs> Escape pet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be. <laughs> when we were in Queensland, it was their environment seemed different than when we were in the Northern Territory. Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess it, it really. Uh, probably it was the humidity. I, I would guess would be uh, would be what it was because uh, the Northern Territory really didn't seem to have much, you know. Mm, um, and it could right. have been timing. I'd have to look at. I think we went at the same time, but I'd I'd have to look at that for sure. Um, no, that I mean that's interesting. It definitely seems like they they are pretty absent from extremely arid regions and or and extremely tropical regions, um, but you know. When, when you start to compile all the different habitat types that you can find, uh, you know, in in literature, you got wooded savannas, open forests, rainforest margins, spin effects, black soil plains, shrublands, riparian areas, dry water courses, rocky hills. It's just I think that we can definitely say they're fairly generalist <laughs> as yeah. long as they have their needs met. Um, yeah. And, and uh, I, I think it's actually in Scott and Ty's book um, that they, they say that they are often found on 
clay loam soil types. And perhaps that has something to do with maybe those are more optimal soils for digging. Um, I'm mm. not sure, but um, that is mentioned in, in that book. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So <clears throat> I guess the next big thing when it comes to blackheads is the diet, right? Uh, there's yes. this, uh, you know, I think that's the biggest misconception when it comes to blackheads that they're cannibals and they're going to eat each other. And the reason that, uh, you know, Owen said it on NPR for years <laughs> that the reason that he doesn't keep them is because they're afraid they're going to eat each other. I know. Uh, little does he know that he's actually working with the snakes that do eat each other. I know. Well, <laughs> exactly. That. <laughs> When I when I came on the show the first time and mentioned that I was keeping blackheads, he's like, "Aren't you scared?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> like, why? Why? <laughs> who who told you this?" <laughs> right? He's been broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would be far more afraid of a lot of the stuff he's working on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a Kribo, uh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. I know. So I think it's fair to say that blackheads are a reptile. Reptiles they feed primarily <laughs> on reptiles. Um, that is absolutely fair to say. Uh, I think the most comprehensive study uh, that looked into their diet was uh, Shine in 1991. Uh, they claimed that small mammals and birds only made up about 10% or less of the blackheaded python's total diet. Um, that other, you know, 90 plus percent being made up primarily of, of lizards and skinks and other snakes, uh, a lot of goannas, uh, uh, a, a gamid, uh, dragons, blue tongue skinks, things of that nature. Um, so reptile specialists for sure. Right. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Probably depends a little bit uh, on the locality in terms of the exact split, right? You know, you might have some areas where. Um, some, some small mammals maybe are more available than in other places, but I think it's, it's certainly fair to call them a, a reptile eater and, and a snake eater at that. Um, that being said though, <laughs> there are no recorded instances of cannibalism in the wild that I have come across. Right. Um, and my guess is that it is exceedingly rare in captivity as well. Um, maybe it happened to one really unfortunate fella and we all ran with it <laughs> i wonder if it it maybe had to do with the fact that maybe it was combat of some sort and they, you know they sure do that yes <laughs> and they could be quite <laughs> aggressive in their combat as opposed to you know say like a carpet python which they're just sort of you know, right. fighting to see who More gets to the top. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to say that, um, you know, they have been known to, uh, there was uh, that little uh, article that I had that uh, they found a road killed uh, blackhead uh, on Gib River Road, um, <laughs> which is, uh, but it had consumed three cats. <laughs> wow. Which okay. I, I thought it was interesting. It's um, very interesting. Well, I mean, yeah. they're they're sure gonna be opportunistic, you know. Um, just because they like eating a lot of reptiles doesn't mean they won't take a cat. Apparently, uh, if, yeah. if they come across it. Sure. Um, one thing that I also think is is pretty interesting and, and kind of got my my gears turning is that um, there is a group of of Aboriginal people in uh, the desert communities north of 25 degrees latitude that call the black-headed headed python 
and I'm probably going to make this sound like a really stupid word again, but Warurungkalpa, which translates literally to grinder or crusher of rock wallabies. So to me, it's it's very interesting that a, a community of indigenous people would, you know, nickname the blackhead rock wallaby eater, you know, because we don't think of them as as feasting on mammals as much. So maybe that that uh suggests that their diet is pretty locality specific, depending on where they're at. Or maybe it's just a silly nickname that has no scientific value, <laughs> but Right. Fun fact, nonetheless. <laughs> huh. That's interesting. Yeah. It's um, so in captivity, uh, they are fed a high mammalian diet. Yes. Um, and that has some keepers have shown that to have negative side effects uh, to uh, to their long term health. Um, right. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, now that there's products like, say, Reptilinks or things like that, maybe it's possible to do more of a varied diet. I know it's kind of taboo in the reptile hobby to sort of feed a reptile other reptiles. Which is <laughs> um, dumb. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's what they eat. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I, what's your what's your thoughts with, with that? I, I, I think... This may be one of the reasons why I, I sort of want to get this figured out on how I'm going to approach this when I keep them. Right. Um, and maybe it's not as big of a deal as I in my head that I make it out to be, but um, I don't know. It just seems... Well, we can't argue with our natural history, right? I mean, they are yeah. reptile specialists. Um, unfortunately, we aren't super well equipped in U.S. herpticulture to you know, feed those animals the way that they probably should be fed. Um, you know, even if you are somebody that is willing to toss a, a feeder, you know, a, a reptile that was bred to be a pet as a feeder, that that's very expensive. Um, right. and, and I'm not sure that it's the most efficient way to go about things. So, I mean, the fact of the matter is most people are, are maintaining these things on rodent diets in captivity. Um, I think that it is definitely something that if you are not careful and deliberate and cognizant of what you're doing, I think you can absolutely feed a blackhead to death. I mean, th there's, there's published work um, regarding hepatic lipidosis, which is that fatty liver disease, specifically in Aspidites. There's veterinary papers because, because it is so common. Um, right. And, you know, it, it's not rocket science. Uh, you know, these, <laughs> these, really fatty rodents, their systems are just not going to be tailored to that when we're talking about something that's cruising around eating skinks and goannas and, and things of that nature. So for me, I, I think that, you know, we do have to acknowledge that, that that's what we got, but I think that that doesn't mean you have to throw up your hands and say, oh, well, and, and just feed it like everything else you have. Like you can right. acknowledge that they're reptile specialists and you don't have access to reptiles and still feed it differently knowing that, um, you know, think of your rodents as instead of a, you know, a nice healthy salad, your rodent is a, is a cheeseburger, <laughs> cheeseburger with extra bacon and, and uh, for some reason, a whole bunch of hair. 
Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, feed, feed differently. You know, a blackhead doesn't need a big old giant rat. Maybe it's more healthy to give it a smaller prey item. Um, more often kind of approach maybe for me personally, um, I, I am a big advocate of feeding birds to, to snakes like blackheads that are more, mm-hmm. um, reptile oriented because the fat content on a bird is going to be a little bit closer to that, to that reptile than a fatty right. rat. Um, so, you know, at the moment, my blackheads probably get 80 to 90% bird. Um, okay. That's just me, you know. And I'm getting ahead yeah. of myself here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a good approach. You know, um, yeah. I think that, we'll, we'll uh, on feeding in captivity more at the end, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For sure. hundred percent. So basically, right yeah, in the wild, uh, they, they're basically eating reptiles. Uh, they, they don't eat cane toads. Um, right. <laughs> which is good. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Which at is least good. We have that. Yeah. Right. Do they eat venomous snakes? So, right. Yes. So that's another one kind of like the the heat pit thing. Like that's the number two fun fact that we always hear when we're, we're hearing about Aspidites is that they can eat and do eat some of the most venomous snakes in Australia. Um, and that is another thing that I've been trying to pin, you know, uh, the claim to to a, a real source. And I can't find it. I can't find it in academic literature, but that doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, even Australia Zoo of all places has that on their website. Um, so I, I think that that is true, um, but it has not necessarily been written up or or researched in any sort of academic setting. Um, but that seems to be just kind of the common knowledge, I guess, if you will, is that they are capable of feeding upon uh, some of those. Um, a lapids and right. you know you can kind of almost think of them in, in that way as like a giant australian king snake you know <laughs> like <Right. laughs> the way we have our king snakes here uh eating our endemic pit vipers and and you know you can kind of think of it that way um hmm. it's yeah. interesting that they would be the king snake when i say that rat snakes are the carpet pythons you know? yeah <laughs> uh, and you could maybe also even make a case for like blackhead being the australian version of an indigo yeah there you go that's Um, that's a good point if you want to play that game but yeah i i did ask a few folks in australia about that particular claim and and kind of the response was just like oh well of course they do right don't they has anybody right. proven that? And there's like more research needed. It's like, right. so I think it's one that of those. That seems things. to be the, uh, the the never ending story with uh, with this species is yeah. that uh, there's a lot of and, lore, right? Yeah. So uh, if we say things that are wrong or whatever, that's why we're trying to speak it. Well, at least the, the, you know we're trying to speak in a way that's not saying it's definitive, right? But this is sort of uh, what is known, if you will, I guess. Sure, it, um, it's certainly talked about as if as if that is the case and. Um, right. You know, maybe it's a situation where whoever's bigger eats the other one. If you had like a, a blackhead and a and a, a mulga snake or something like that, you know, maybe it's just kind of <laughs> bigger one wins. <laughs> yeah, you know, the one thing that I that I always seem to see is like, you know, nature sort of sort of has like rules, but at the same time it does not. <laughs> so it's sort of uh, you know, and a lot of these uh, species that we talk about a lot of times will be sort of 
in these situations where they have to take advantage of an opportunity or they may die. Right. You know, hundred so. percent. I mean, blackheads especially are, are super opportunistic. I mean, they've even, there's been a, uh, recorded observations of blackheads feeding on roadkill koanas that had been dead for at least a day and ran <laughs> over by multiple cars. So, you know, that you take what you can get out there. That's for sure. Yeah. I've, I've seen what that looks like and that's not a pretty <laughs> sight, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, but, um, not an easy okay, survival. So <laughs> the other thing that uh, that I that I saw is that uh, if you do, if you were to say get bitten by a black-headed python, and mm -hmm. you were to sort of uh, uh, you that bite could show up as a I don't know which venomous snake, but it, it, tiger snake genus. Tiger snakes. Okay. Yeah, it's this right. it's this weird thing. Um, the secretions of the saliva in a black-headed bite can. Um, erroneously <clears throat> pop up as as venomous for the tiger snake genus on this certain Commonwealth Serum Labs venom detection kit that is is a tool used to you know kind of figure out whether you want to give um, monovalence or polyvalence antivenom to a bite victim. But obviously, the blackhead is not a venomous snake, and the reason for that interaction is is not known. Um, but it's kind of funky. That's weird that yeah. that happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very strange. Yeah. But, uh, okay. Um, it's, so, yeah. I guess the question would be whether it's a problem with the test or whether it's something with the snake itself, you know? Right. Or maybe both. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's fun fact number three, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, so the environment, uh, I guess that's what we'll hit on next is, okay. um, so I did, I did pull the, the weather spark data from Darwin, right? Um, and the reason I went with Darwin is just because I was there. So it's sort of, I, I, I don't know, I, I could relate to it better, but uh, I guess you could go to weather spark and pull from Queensland, which maybe in retrospect, I probably should have done. So I had both to compare, but I would think that, um, <clears throat> it's probably, it's probably a little bit different, but, uh, for the most part, uh, that, that whole top end, I think it's, is, is dependent on what part of the environment you're in. But I would think that the, 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 the areas that the blackheads are in are, are somewhat similar, but, uh, um, it, uh, it's hot. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, no. So basically there's a wet season and then there's a dry season and the wet season is, uh, is basically oppressive and overcast and the dry scene is muggly and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's cloudy, but, uh, it's pretty much hot all year round there. Um, and your temperatures, uh, you know, typically vary from about 68 degrees Fahrenheit to about 91, um, mm -hmm. is, is sort of the, the average, uh, of what it is. But I would imagine those temperatures will probably be changing It'll probably will be getting warmer. Um, and you know, over the coming decades, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that whole thing, that climate change business. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that, Damn climate change. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's one of those things where, uh, you're looking at, uh, the temperatures, uh, basically dropping down at night. 
Um, mm. And, you know, the lowest that you're going is, you know, 70 to 68, somewhere in that um, time for uh, temperature. Um, in Darwin, you said, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're Very talking cool. Darwin. Very cool. Um, it's tricky again with the species that, that exists over such a wide range, you know, they're probably going to have different little mini climates along that entire thing. So, yeah. um, and, and, you know, here's just an idea I was thinking, right. So like if you have the, and you'll be able to say, answer this better than I would, but if you have an animal that is varied in those areas, such a, such a, such a wide uh, distribution mm -hmm. um, is individual behaviors in different environments. Um, you know, maybe we're seeing that because they're sort of using uh, microclimates to sort of adapt to live in that specific area. Yeah, that, yeah, I would yeah. think so. I mean, certainly, what comes to mind for me, given that we're talking about aspidites, is. is just the use of burrows and, and things of that nature, you know, there, there is no better thermal buffer in Australia than a good burrow. Um, it will keep scorching hot temperatures, uh, nice and mild, and it will keep freezing cold temperatures, not freezing cold. Um, so in a lot of these areas, it's, it is probably more a matter of, uh, proper microclimates in, in, in retreat sites, um, and then you kind of deal with what's going on around that. So, you know, it's kind of like when when people ask if blackheads and womas, for that matter, are nocturnal or diurnal, the answer is yes, depending on the time of the year. Um, because really, they're just going to be active whenever the, the thermal environment is, is agreeable to them, you know, and, and during certain parts of the year, that's going to be during the day. And during other parts of the year, that's going to be at night. Right. Um, so ab absolutely, I think that regardless of what the climate is, you know, on a, with a blackhead that's maybe more coastal versus something more inland that experiences, you know, hotter or cooler temperatures, it, it's probably just a matter of of still finding those happy zones within the broader environment and uh, using those refuge sites to to stay, you know, to thermoregulate appropriately. Um, Right. I, uh, when I, I, when we were in, uh, Chilago, um, I got to experience this sort of, uh, firsthand on how you could, uh, escape the oppressive Australian heat. You know, uh, it was probably in the high nineties outside, um, these caves when you went into the caves, and obviously the further you went back, um, you're looking at 78 degrees, which is which is kind of a, I mean, you're you know oh, yeah. that's kind of a big difference, sure. but, you know. Um, so I could see where not only you know animals, snakes, reptiles would utilize that, but also Aboriginal people. That you know, it it kind of fascinated me. Like, okay, this is probably how they were able to survive through this oppressive heat um, by retreating to these uh, areas where it's a it's a lot cooler. So, um, yeah, I I I guess that's why they've uh, developed to your point uh, to be able to escape to these different burrows yeah, and, and, and stuff. You know, the burrows hmm. are kind of 
are kind of what I've, you know, been able to find really nice concrete temperature data for, but I'm sure that, that nice rocky outcrops and, and crevices and things of that nature also can help, um, either shelter you from, you know, the hotter, the cold. Right. So, you know, in, in terms of, of how powerful something like a burrow is in terms of that thermal buffering, um, you know, in, in that radio tracking study that Dr. Brutton did on, on Woma pythons in the Brigalow, um, which of course we can extrapolate for blackheads because the natural history is very similar, um, with sub zero temperatures at their study site. So literally below freezing outside those, uh, exposed ground burrow systems, uh, remained above 53.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so much better than freezing. Uh, and then the highest recorded temperature uh, inside of a burrow uh, during that study was 93.2. It never got hotter than that inside. Uh, and when it was that temperature, the outside ambient temperature was uh, approaching 110. So, you know, it, it really is wow. possible that having access to that kind of stuff is the difference between life and death, <laughs> whether you're burning up and desiccating in the heat or, or turning right. into a snake icicle, you know, that that's what you got to do is, is find those, those safe havens inside the, the mosaic. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as, as far as, uh, their light cycle and probably experiencing, uh, you know, very, 12-12 type of type of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a whole lot of fluctuation, at least up in uh, in Darwin. I think it's probably very similar to what you would would find in Papua New Guinea, uh, if you will. Um, but uh, very cool. So that that would be year round. Yeah. But uh, humidity, uh, you know, uh, basically what they're experiencing out there um, is uh, pretty much a period of high humidity and then a period of low humidity. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I think if you look at what was interesting, if you look at like the rainfall chart that's on there and you will see when, um, blackheads, pythons are hatching, um, is usually, uh, when the rainy season is ramping up. So my thought would be, is that it's sort of time so that, you know, those little lizards and yes. uh, all those little skinks and, you know, whatever, you know, maybe, out <laughs> you know, little <laughs> chicks or whatever, uh, they're able to, uh, secure that meal, uh, if you will. So, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, it's sort of, uh, basically they're mating in June through September is when they're mating. Um, and this is the wild, um, right. And, or if you live in Australia, uh, and, uh, they're laying their eggs, uh, from October to November and, Right. For what I've seen, it's six to eighteen clutch uh, egg clutch. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I've heard five to twenties, kind of still in the same same ballpark. Right. Yeah. What is the yeah. what is like captivity? Is it is it high? I'm assuming it's higher, right? Uh, like meaning it's like twenty twenty eggs, fifteen. It, it's interesting. I. Because their eggs are big, right? <laughs> the eggs are large. Um, the average length of a blackhead egg is 86 millimeters, an average diameter 50 millimeters. They weigh like 116 grams a piece on average. Wow. They're big. That's a big egg. Um, they are big eggs. And it doesn't seem to me like 
colossally large clutches in captivity are common. I think that it still is probably safe to say it averages like maybe five to 15. Okay. Um, it, it seems like the folks that blew up big giant blackheads and maybe got consistent 15 to 28 clutches, maybe they don't have that blackhead anymore. Um, <laughs> so it's right. probably healthier to, to have somewhere between five and, and, and 12 eggs or something like that. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a species that you can really drastically increase their clutch size health in a healthy way. Yeah. And the, uh, they, like we said earlier, the, the males have been observed to combat, um, and bite. Yes. <laughs> Which, yes, they, they are known to engage in combat for sure. And it's not quite that ritualistic thing that we talked about. You know, they're not just trying to wrestle the other one to the ground, but in, in blackheads, it has been observed to be far more aggressive, you know, males deliberately wounding the other, biting, using spurs to gouge. Like it's a little bit more uh, cutthroat, at least in some instances, it's been observed to be a little bit more cutthroat. Um, and so definitely something to keep your eye on if you're doing that in captivity. I was going to ask that. Like, I don't really hear, you know, it seems like uh, carpet python people, Morelia people seem to use that as a uh, sort of a push to get, uh, to induce breeding. Um, right. Maybe blackheads don't need that push. Like uh, maybe uh, carpets do, I guess at some point. Yeah, maybe it's because we're breeding you don't them hear younger. about it as much, right? In blackheads, like the casual, like, yeah, just combated them, threw them together. You know, you don't hear that as much, but. I did see uh, a video of the K brothers and, and they, they were combating their males for their breeding of blackheaded pythons in Australia. So some people do it. Um, it, it might just be something that you want to be a little bit more on top of watching <laughs> to make sure it doesn't get too far. Um, there was a note in, in one of the publications I was reading that said, you know, captive blackheads, have been observed engaging in that particularly violent combat, but, but it, that biting and gouging has not been, um, well documented in the wild. So it's not really clear if the wild specimens combat to that degree, or if maybe it's a product of captivity, it's, it's not a hundred percent known. So, yeah, but you know, gotcha. Caution, have caution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're having trouble breeding, maybe that's a route that you want to go. But if you're going to go that route, make sure that you are paying attention and not just uh, yeah, don't leave walking away. Uh, <laughs> right. I would assume that the blackheads are laying their eggs in burrows or, or perhaps, you know, in, in other forms of, of retreat, you know, maybe a nice hollow log or, or a, a good rock uh, crevice. But um that that's not documented. Um, we do know that Wilma's lay their eggs in, in burrows, so maybe that transfers over. Um, it has been observed that blackheads like to bask a lot more frequently in the weeks leading up to uh, oviposition, so they definitely, like most pythons, try to get a bunch of heat when they're gravid. Um, help cook those eggs. <laughs> Do you think that's why they have been, they seem to be, 
I know Owen has seen this with his carpets, but it seems that most people that breed blackheads have the blackhead that you come in and it's turned upside down and you, <laughs> you know, you think is dead. <laughs> Do you think that they that's have great. a, uh, that's their way of, uh, as they're getting closer to, uh, to laying the eggs that, uh, they're trying to soak up that heat in some way? Shoot, could be. I mean, especially if you have an overhead heat, you know, if you're running a bulb of some sort, that that would make a lot of sense. Um, but, you know, who knows? It is really funny to see when they do that. <laughs> they might just be trying to get comfortable, take some of that weight off their belly. And then just like... Yeah. It's funny how we like immediately go to like the craziest thing when it's probably the most simple thing, you know, it's like, oh, well, they must be doing this because, right. you know, clearly they're basking and they're trying to get the heat and it's no, they're just trying to get more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows, you know, yeah. I'm sure there'd be people out there listening right now that want to fight us that a snake can feel comfort. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I know <laughs> that's for another show. <laughs> um, Indeed. But, uh, but yeah, I, I did see that thing too. And they don't shiver. Um, right. Right. There's not evidence that blackheaded pythons do that, that facultative thermogenesis. Uh, Arizona State University went ahead and looked into facultative thermogenesis in pythons at large, um, looked at a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, species and, um, the Aspidites pythons were ones that did not show any evidence of uh, shivering to generate heat for their clutches. Um, now, granted, that was a sample size of of five, um, but you know, from everybody I've talked to, that doesn't seem to be a thing. Uh, and their eggs also don't tend to be adhered the way that we, you know, th- tend to think of python eggs, like a, a a nice beehive of carpet eggs, right? They're all stuck together. Um, doesn't tend to be the case all the time with, with the Aspidite stuff. So that's just kind of another interesting side note. Um, what do they spread out? Well, in the case of the Woma eggs, at least for sure, I, I have, uh, talked to a researcher that found a clutch in the wild and they weren't adhered at all. Oh, and, wow. Hmm. Um, I, uh, some of the, the breeders I've talked to in the States have noticed similarly that none of their eggs ever stick together. So, <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it seems to just not really be a thing. I wonder if that's a thing of the environment. I wonder if that's a thing because I think of, there was a paper, I think Shine wrote the paper on water pythons as the clutch was incubating, the, the water pythons left the eggs right. to sort of hatch on their own. And I don't know if that's just a, uh, because the environment is more stable, if you will, you know, not a lot of fluctuation, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and, and I am kind of extrapolating here. I mean, uh, the observations I'm describing were in Woma pythons, and I'm just kind of assuming that it's that sure. it's the case yeah. with blackheads as well. Yeah. Um, but perhaps I'm wrong. You know, maybe blackheads uh, do have more sticky eggs. I'm not sure. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's not necessarily the first question you ask about eggs. Do they stick? You right. <laughs> but What? <laughs> <laughs> I guess it leads to the whole thing of uh, I'm going to go with you on this one because currently you're okay. keeping them. So, you know, I, I sort of kept them like carpets and, you know, 
for sure. I don't have them anymore. So <laughs> we're gonna yeah. we're gonna go with you. So what's your let like okay, let's let's break it down. Uh, I'm gonna go step by step and rapid fire okay. some questions at you and, and let's and, do it. And you uh get it, okay? <laughs> sort of like uh your humans of hope herpticulture rapid fire <laughs> at the end. Uh Excellent. so as far as heat, what's yes. what would be your approach? Um, so overall, I mean, for for hatchlings, um, juveniles raise up stuff like that. You know, the little guys that I tend to have in the racks, um, they're getting they're getting belly heat. Um, I, I try to have that hot spot somewhere between 85 and 90. Um, but with a with a python like the blackhead, you know, they're so um, hardy and and good at, at you know, I don't what I'm trying to say is I don't tend to worry much about the cold side. I know that my particular apartment will never get into the, <laughs> the fifties or whatever. So I just make sure that that, that hot end is where I want it. And then the rest kind of falls as it, as it may. Um, I do use uh, heat panels and ceramic bulbs with my adults, just depending on, on which setup they're in. Um, they are a snake that I have noticed um, will go out of their way to, you know, quote, bask uh, in, in the event of a, a bulb being provided. And also when the sun shines on their cage through the window, which is always kind of fun to see, they they do like to come sit on, uh, like if you give them a rock hide or something like that, they'll they'll plant themselves on top um, and, and bask. Um, but yeah, for heat, that's that's my approach. Um, I, I tend to set them up... Um, with kind of a drier substrate, you know, they're not a species that needs excessive moisture. Um, they all shed just fine, uh, on a nice, like, uh, sh wood shaving, you know, a, a, something like a, a sandy chip style, um, substrate. And that's what I like to use because they can dig as well. Okay. Um, and, and I have absolutely observed that scooping with the nice. neck in that <laughs> substrate, which is, which is so fun to see. And, yeah. and you can get more elaborate with your substrate. I know our good friend, um, you know, Travis Wyman, he has a, a Aspidites mix recipe that he does with a bunch of different things to kind of make more of like a, a soil sand kind of thing to facilitate digging. So, um, you know, from, from the evidence-based perspective, uh, these guys are going to spend time underground. If you're able to provide something that uh, simulates that. I think that that's fun. What I like to do is take those big um, reptile basics hides, you know, those PVC hides and just drill a hole on the top and bury the thing um, so that there's basically a hole in the ground <laughs> for the, oh, for the snake to go yeah. in. Um, mm. I love doing that with blackheads and womas and, and, you know, they, can choose to either go in from the top or in from the door. Cause, cause those things have a door built in. I'm not, I'm not blocking it <laughs> off, but they always go in from the top right. um, because you know, when you do it like that, it feels like they're going into some sort of a little, a little burrow. Um, so that's something that follows the natural history there that you can do. Um, I know that uh, I think Justin used to do this. I don't know if he keeps it the same way, but he used to sort of have, and I think, Bob Applegate might have been the one that originated this type of caging, but basically you had a cage on the top with a hole that sort of nice. had a tub on the bottom. Right. And yeah. So you could definitely uh, do something you like that totally too. Do that. You know? Get creative and, yeah. and, you know, that's a nice, nice way to 
kind of have a, a shift container too, you know, if you want to clean the cage, just chase it into your, your bin and plug the hole and you're good. So, right. <laughs> um, right. yeah, I, I think that it's, that it's really rewarding to try and, and base your setups on natural history. And, you know, Aspidites provides you with such a great opportunity with that in that they are a, a partially fossorial species. So if you can give them something to feel like they're burrowing or, or underground, that's awesome. And you'll see a lot of awesome behaviors. Um, but I mean, really by and large, they're, they're easy to take care of. Their setups are not, you know, nothing, is out of the ordinary or, or, or tricky. Um, pretty typical. I, I think that they, um, appreciate a nice size water basin, not for soaking per se, but, um, at least mine spend a lot of time with their head underwater. Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of a, huh. a you know, just a, one of those funny observations, just one of those things that you only notice because you have the thing in your room. It's sure. just like, they like, they, they like to kind of put their head under the water and look around. And I, I don't know what that's about, but whenever they are, I guess what I'm trying to say too, is they're very clued in on fresh water, at least, at least the ones that I have. And every time I do a water change, they're immediately at the bowl. Um, so I think there are species that, uh, that can recognize the difference between fresh and old water and they're very icky about it. Um, all of my blackheads gorge themselves on a new water change. Um, I would so say, maybe there's something to that. I would say that I've seen that across the board when it comes to Australian pythons. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It seems like as soon as you change that water, man, they're whew, right to yeah. it, you know? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, so interesting. Yeah. What else? Um, okay. So what about uh, cage size? Cage size. Um, I, I do have, like I was saying, my my lone hatchling, uh, my, my firstborn, and my juveniles are currently in racks. Um, you know, the, the neonate I was able to get feeding on his own, which, of course, is a very tricky part of blackheads. And part of the reason they're not more uh, abundant and popular is because they don't want to freaking eat. Um, but part of the way that I was able to get my dude to eat is by keeping him in a nice, small, dark baby bin, <laughs> um, at, you know, at, as, as you would expect, um, in terms of adults, I, I I've been saying like the best decision I made with my snakes this year was getting a big old six foot enclosure for my adult male blackhead because, He's so active, you know, these snakes, they are not really a sit and wait, hide all the time ambush snake. They are, they're out and about like their, um, foraging strategy is, is almost kind of more a lapid like, you know, they, they're out there chasing down scent trails and, and actively foraging. So providing them space where they can actually, um, you know, be active is, is really rewarding. You get to see the snake all the time. They're always out and about. Um, and, and he uses every bit of that. So I like six foot for an adult, you know, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people going, you know, I've been successful and they're only in four foot. Well, good for you. You know, <laughs> right. I bet you, if you give them a couple more feet, they, they would use it and it would look cool. But, um, so for me, like most things, it's kind of a matter of as much space as you can give them as adults, the better. Um, that's just my opinion. Um, 
Yeah, but, I've, n- I've never understood the argument of like getting mad at somebody because they're given something more space. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. wait, how what? dare you? <laughs> right. Making and me again, look bad. Yeah. Again, with the blackheads, there's not a ton of, of studies, but with Wilma's that we have radio tracked, they, they travel large distances. You know, I'm talking like on average, a third of a mile traveled from one resting site to prey capture. So, you know, they're, they're putting the miles in out there. And, and when, when we're talking about a snake too, that is a reptile specialist that is being maintained on a fatty rodent diet, man, the more physical exercise you can give that thing, the better you're going to be. They burn calories just like we do. And, um, more space is a good way to offset feeding something that is a little bit too rich. Um, you know, you can help help them burn some of those nutrients out, or some of that uh, energy storage um, by by giving them room to move. <laughs> yeah, I would wonder if um, you could go as far as like maybe hiding the prey item in. You know, to your point, if you're using yeah. those hides or if you're using you know cork bark tube or something like that, if that would sort oh, yeah. of. Uh, they're great for for the hide and seek game and and funny that you mentioned that I don't have I have one blackhead that will take prey off of tongs. The rest of them will not uh drop feed only. Um so they they just won't do it. So I enjoy hiding the prey items cuz that's the only way they'll eat for me anyway. Um you know, I get open mouth bluff strikes at 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 prey offered on tongs and so it's just kind of another funky thing. They are very, very funny snakes. They're, you know, in terms of like their goofy personality, if you will, they're they're very unique. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that I do know. Yes. Um, what about yeah. cage design? Are you? And what I mean by that, are you are you yeah. offering, you know, is it more of a, a, a rocky type of outcrop type of design? Is it mm. uh, perching, um, obviously not perching, uh, branches that they can climb up right. on? Well, I will say they, they certainly will. I mean, when we're talking about the kinds of enclosures that we're keeping in our homes, you know, none of them are going to be like a, a 20 foot tall you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. tree replica. So right. <laughs> in your two foot tall enclosure, they will absolutely climb on on given vertical space um, i think they're actually pretty competent at doing that um, so if you chose to give a shelf or, or branches or something to that effect they'll use it and you're expanding you know your your um, usable enclosure footprint um, which is always nice so uh, for me i i do kind of like to try and and mimic pictures that i've seen um, i don't I think I could do a lot better at that. And that's something I want to get better at over the coming years is that enclosure design piece, you know, things, things like what Luke is doing and, and beaches scaly beasts. Like you showed me like that's next yeah. level. That would <laughs> yeah. be really fun to do for a blackhead with a bunch of rocks and, and stuff like that. But I kind of just try to, to emulate a semi arid, um, kind of deal. I've got lots of logs and, and fake plants and rock hides and those, you know, subterranean, hide boxes but yeah for sure um definitely if if you do offer like with most snakes you know they have nothing better to do than explore that box so if you if you offer vertical opportunity they'll take it they're not gonna chondro perch but they're certainly capable of climbing and though i did have a yearling do a chondro perching thing on the wire of my radiant heat panel 
consistently. She chose to be off the ground huh. probably 60% of the time, um, no which kidding. I found very, very interesting. Wow. Um, so <laughs> interesting. do with that as you will. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, yeah. Feeding. Uh, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I think this is probably the biggest uh, blackhead topic, yeah. if you will. It is. Yeah. So, well, again, <laughs> um, I choose... I used to say that I choose not to feed rats to my blackheads. Um, I can no longer claim that. But what I can say is that I will never feed anything bigger than a small rat to a blackhead. Um, I'm not a fan of pumping these snakes up with, you know, extremely large rodents. Um, some people do. Some people do that, swear that it doesn't have problems, swear that they have great success, you know, more power to you. But for me... Um, I'm trying to, as best I can, base my keeping on on the natural history to the extent that is feasible, you know, given the given what we've got. So that being said, I like to feed kind of the smaller prey more often. Approach with them almost more like a a big colubrid. Um, I will offer uh, mice even to adults. I will offer quail, like I was saying, a a large proportion of the time. Um, I got my hatchling this year started on pre-killed fuzzy mice um that i had to leave in the cage i did have to assist feed to get him going um but if i'm not mistaken i only had to do that four or five times i i got lucky right because you definitely hear about blackhead babies that will not take food on their own for months you know upwards of six seven even eight months Sometimes that people are just assist feeding these things and they're, they're, you know, they're not viewing what you're giving them as food. Um, so that being said, I know there's people that like to start their blackheads on stillborn carpet python babies. And if you have that resource available to you, that's pretty great. Um, there's people that try to start them on rat tails because it's easy to slide down the throat. Uh, I've heard people doing quail heads because the beak is nice and pointy and easy to open the mouth with. Right. Um, <laughs> there's a lot right. of ways to go about it. Right. Um, but, you know, again, I, I got mine going on on pre-killed drop-fed uh, fuzzies after a few um, assists. And, yeah, I think that what what you should – in my opinion, based on the natural history and, and the ecology, what you should be really cognizant of with your blackhead is don't get on any schedules. I mean, like just try to try to think a little bit critically about what you gave it last time, how that, you know, relates to the natural history and, and the amount of exercise or physical activity, if you will, that that snake's been up to in the me in the meantime, you know, if like, if I feed a rat, I might not feed for a couple weeks versus if I feed a, a small quail, then maybe I'm feeding again, um, you know, in a week or something like that. So I don't know. I just try to think about it a little bit more, um, deliberately and, and go from there. Um, yeah, I, you, it's just, it's not a snake that you want to pound, a medium rat every week and, and expect everything to be okay. That's, that's just not the case. Now are they, and this is something that I didn't observe, but um, I'm curious if you have, have you done feeding according to watching the snake? Like meaning that you feed it a meal that is sort of like, 
hunker down for a couple of days and mm -hmm. you're not really, you know, they're, they're sort of digesting that meal and then you'll see them active again, AKA like, you know, right. like we do with, uh, you know, chondros are, are notorious for something like that, you know, paying attention to them and seeing them cruise in their cage and saying, Oh, I want to eat again. Sure. I take note of it. I, you know, I, I like to notice that and, and see how it correlates to what I gave them, but I don't, I don't let it guide me by any means. Um, you know, I, I don't want them to have the say in when they eat because then th they'll eat all the time. Right. <laughs> right. But certainly, uh, you know, it's it's a good thing to keep tabs on to see, you know, oh, man, maybe that maybe that rat I gave you last time did take you a little bit longer. You know, maybe we'll go a quail this time around or something like that. Um, and again, there's there's also that debate that I know you and I have talked about on other shows about whether it's responsible, appropriate, healthy to feed um, fattier prey items more often for animals that are growing and then take, you know, dialing it back once they're adults, right? Like, can you break a baby? Um, and, and that is a debate. Uh, some people that are very uh, breeder minded, you know, reproduction oriented would say, you know, you just, if you want that thing to be ready to go at four years, you better pound it. Um, but I don't think that that's the healthiest way to go about things. So it depends on what your goals are, right? Are you, are you trying to structure yourself for the health and longevity of the animal? Or are you trying to get to that breeding age as fast as you can? So it's that whole thing. <laughs> right. And I, we should make a note. Uh, I don't think I said breeding age. We're looking at <laughs> four to five years, right? Yeah, that uh, tends to be what I hear the most. Um, okay. I'm, I'm sure that there's exceptions, but in, in general, four or five is probably about right. Right. Okay. Um, Which I think is probably consistent with most, most pythons is probably yeah. a healthy age. I, I think we just sort of ball python <laughs> everything, you know. It's like, oh, yeah, they'll breed this time, so this is what we're going to do. Okay. 100%. And I just wanted to say too, before, before we move past that in regards to the fatty liver disease thing, um, you know, it, it absolutely is a thing, right. You know, that you hear about with blackheads and, and like I said, it is published in, in some veterinary journals. There's things you can look for with that. Um, if, if you're worried about your blackhead, perhaps being obese and having issues, um, you, will notice that muscle tone will decrease. And if you're paying attention to the uh, urates, uh, a snake that's suffering from that hepatic lipidosis is going to have a discoloration more often than not. So you're going to see yellow and green urates. Uh, that's indicative of liver dysfunction um, and scant fecal components. So, you know, just something to keep in mind there. If, if you're noticing your urate color, being off, it might right. be a, it might be indicative of that liver working a little bit too hard. So, just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, mm. If you want to know more about that that particular thing, the paper is by Simpson in two thousand six, case study of fatty liver disease in blackheaded pythons. Interesting. Can that be reversed? It can, I believe. Uh, I, I think that if memory serves. Um, I read this paper a few months back. I think they were able to get that snake on a diet and get it, <laughs> get it at, at least keep it alive. Um, right. You know, I don't know how much it is of like a damage done situation that is, but 
yeah, you can certainly you can certainly slim the snake down. What what people have to keep in mind too is especially with snakes like blackheads that can be prone to the obesity thing is like it's not going to be easy to see necessarily. Um, if it's to the point where you notice, you're way far gone because snakes don't store fat subcutaneously the way that mammals do, right? We have that nice layer of fat that we all are trying to get rid of between our skin <laughs> yeah. and our muscles. Yeah. Um, on the outside, snakes don't do that. Their fat builds up around their organ tissue in their body cavity. Um, and so if it gets to the point where you're noticing it, that's trouble. That's a lot of fat in there. Like <laughs> yeah. they can be metabolically obese before before it's noticeable. So that's why, again, reptile, reptile feeders. Yeah, 100 percent be cognizant. <laughs> nice. And I'll tell you what, you know, if, if I can get my hands on some uh, perhaps stillborn or naturally deceased bearded dragons or something like that at work, you bet I'm going to freeze them and keep those. I mean, if you have the luxury of getting your hands on something like that, I, I have no problem tossing that to a, a blackhead. I did feed my uh, blackhead a bearded dragon. Uh, and I not, a, not a live oh. one, a dead one. <laughs> but uh, Was it? Was oh it my happy? God, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you can say it was happy because, but I. I yes, felt sorry, not that the it was H happy. word. <laughs> yeah. it, all right. Let me try again. Did it consume the bearded dragon? <laughs> I thought it consumed it with a little more vigor than it did with the mouse. So that's why I'm, I'm going to say maybe it was a little bit happier. Like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to eat. You know, but, quiet. You people in the audience. Let us have this one. Yeah, <laughs> this one H word. <laughs> yes. Damn it. Um, uh, the one thing I would make a note uh, about the uh, the whole thing with uh, if you're not intending to breed uh, and mm -hmm. if you're not going that route, um, if you get a blackhead from a from a breeder that's a mm -hmm. reputable breeder, you know once blackheads are going, they're going. Right. <laughs> it, the the hard part is just getting them going. Right. Hundred percent. Uh, After you know, that, they do not miss a meal, and that's right. why you have to be careful. Right. On the flip side, to not overdo it because. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So no, if you're, if you, yeah, if you're going to breed, if that's something you want to do, or maybe you're thinking about it down the line, even still, you're going to buy babies that are probably already going. I, I don't really think that uh, a lot of people buy babies that are not uh, feeding, uh, you know, straight out Hopefully of the egg. Not. You know, yeah. sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> like in your situation, you kind of did because you sort of did like a, a joint pairing sort of thing. Oh, sure. You weren't really buying it. You know, you just sort of did yeah, a joint parent and here's the I egg. chose to take him home. <laughs> right. Exactly. So Yeah. But uh but yeah, so getting from a breeder is gonna really put you in the in the driver's seat to success. Uh if you Absolutely. Will. And so. and you know, just like kinda when like when you're talking about something like a false water cobra or something of that nature, don't be afraid to get creative. You know, I know Derek Roddy, who's a, a very well known and successful blackhead keeper here in the States, uh he talks about feeding a, a good amount of fish to his blackheads as well. So, you know, there's, there's no reason why, why you can't try things outside of the rodent uh, realm with them. Yeah. yeah. Heck yeah. All right. So we've talked uh, cage size, uh, heating, we've talked uh, uh, feeding, uh, anything as far as lighting. Do you do a light cycle <laughs> with them? Lighting. <laughs> Dare we say the U word? Uh-oh. <laughs> well, um, so I, I, 
in that new enclosure that I've got my adult in, I do have a, one of those Arcadia Jungle Dawn <clears throat> LED okay. fixtures on top. All right. Um, just for my viewing pleasure, I think it looks awesome and uh, really brings out some some cool uh, some cool tones in the snake. But yeah, I mean, they are one of those species where if you are a proponent of UVB lighting for snakes, uh, probably makes sense to give it to them. You know, they they do live a pretty active lifestyle. They certainly uh, experience some sunshine where they're at. So um, without stirring too many pots, uh, <laughs> I will go ahead and say that if you believe in the benefits of providing UVB light, Blackhead Natural History would would be conducive to that. So uh, do with that as you will. Um, and then in turn, sorry, what was what was the other thing? <laughs> uh, <I just laughs> light said, cycle? Lights. Yeah, do you do any kind of light cycle? As Nothing far as, like, outside time? of what I get naturally. Um, okay. You know, my room, it does have that, that big window and... Daytime, nighttime is is natural, which is which is great. Except, I guess, from what now I just learned from you, their light cycle is twelve twelve all the time. So maybe it's actually confusing my blackheads down the light cycle. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hey. That's interesting. I don't know. Uh, well, I guess uh, we'll have to uh, experiment some more. You know, I, yeah, I think I basically I, for me, I kind of do twelve twelve with a lot of stuff. I, I don't know what I just seem to, to do. You know, the only ones I don't do that with is diamonds. Um, I manipulate that light cycle as uh, um, mm. part of their uh, breeding strategy, if you will. Um, so, Interesting. Okay. Um, but, uh, but they're all, remembered, what's that? I, I also, I remembered one more point. If I, if I could return to feeding for just a moment. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the things that I found interesting that might support the idea that blackheads should be fed smaller things more often is that um, they were found to have the lowest digestive efficiency um, in a study of a bunch of different Australian pythons that was conducted. Um, basically, they only had about 89% digestive efficiency <laughs> at 33 degrees. Um, and, and just for context, water pythons had a 98% digestive efficiency at, at, at that same temperature. So huh. it's interesting that, um, it seems like they get less out of their food than other pythons. They're, they're not as efficient. Um, and, and species that are not efficient tend to need to eat more often because they're getting less out of their meals. Um, so just something to note. I know, uh, you know, we mentioned Derek Roddy and I know on NPR he's talked about it a couple of times, but his approach is smaller meals more often. So instead of rats, right. he's feeding like a mouse and maybe feeding it, you know, Monday and Tuesday right. and then not feeding it for a week. And then maybe he's feeding it, you know, three yeah, days, you know. There absolutely could be something to that. I, I was surprised to read that data. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> yeah, do with it as you will. I mean, blackheads. That's one of the things that really, that really uh, draws me into the species is is that there is so much about them, both in situ and in captivity, that that's the code is not cracked. Right. Um, it's unknown. That's for sure. I mean, <laughs> right. not even. I mean, just to mention like hatchlings like we still have this weird thing that keeps happening with our captive blackheads where they're born just 
enormous and bloated, just overstuffed with yolk. And, you know, even keeping the eggs alive in some, in some cases, very difficult, particular (laughs) challenge. So there's a lot of work to be done to figure out why certain things happen with this snake and, and how we could be more, uh, successful in captivity. So, Yeah. Wasn't there somebody that bred blackheads this past year and manipulated the temperatures, I believe, which then didn't result in those bloated babies? So I I saw that it was a post from Jason, from Jason Hood, um, where he was talking about deliberately trying to work towards getting rid of those super stuffed <laughs> baby blackheads. <laughs> right. I mean, they don't look right. You know, you, yeah. you, you take a look at one of those things and you're like, Ew. and, and even in my clutch this year with Grant, you know, we had one that came out with that giant lump of a belly and the yolk inside of that was actually hardened. That baby passed. Uh, it didn't make it because it had like two yolks in its belly and one of them was already solidified. And, um, that, referred to as hard belly or something like that. So, um, but what Jason was looking to do from what I gathered, uh, from his Facebook post was he, he incubated much drier than is typical and, uh, got babies that looked a lot more fit and didn't come out with all that extra yolk, just, you know, giant bloated belly. Um, and I have to imagine that when you when you are getting those babies that have so much excess yolk that they have to work through, that probably doesn't help getting them started on food. You know, you're already up against the challenge of reptile fear, but then you add a gallon, a metric ton of yolk that it has to work through before it even gets hungry. Like, <laughs> and then their efficiency is in the shitter. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and and I I think Derek also replied to Jason's post that we're referring to and said that he's been incubating blackhead eggs with zero added moisture for a period of time, which was news to me. So, um, again, the, that code is still not cracked. Um, those are, you know, Jason is definitely somebody on the forefront of trying to do better with that. He even does a night drop with his blackhead eggs, um, which I find very fascinating and, uh, he has great success hashing them out and, and this year, great success hashing them out without bloated bellies. So, uh, maybe drier as, uh, is something to, to yeah. take seriously. I mean, their environment is dry. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine so, that. Yeah. So I guess that you mean I sense. can't just incubate everything like a jungle <laughs> carpet python? Damn it. <laughs> um, yeah. okay. Uh, I think that's pretty <laughs> much, you know, we covered food, we covered, uh, uh the cage, we covered, uh, you know, uh, what the setup would be, the temperature, the light cycle. Um, I, I, am I missing anything? I think, uh, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, it's endless. Yeah, you know, we can talk yeah, for yeah, yeah, hours. Yeah. But in terms of of the uh, the pillars of natural history, I think we hit on most of them. I think that the challenge with breaking down a species like the blackheads is that they do inhabit such a, a large uh, area. But you know, again, I just think that that points to their uh, their resilience and and their ability to adapt in a lot of ways and find their little, uh, optimum zones in a lot of different areas. So really, really cool snake. I am a fan. Yeah, me too. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think that if you're looking for, you know, again, if you're looking for a snake that's sort of uh, active uh, and is uh, going to be out and about and something you can observe different uh, unique, uh, you know, uh, adaptations that they that they do that uh, is, I mean, if you're seeing your blackhead dig, you're kind of, oh, yeah. you're going to be excited, man. You're going to, that little kid is going to come back and you're going to be glued to the, to, you know, to the... I can't stop watching my (laughs) adult in that nice, big, naturalistic setup. I mean, for me, blackheads in my mind are kind of like slightly bigger, arguably prettier Womas that are less likely to have that bite everything. Everything is food. (laughs) I will just throw that out there. You know, I, I... of course, they're so much different. I don't mean to say that they're the same as Womas or anything like that. But but like if you're into Aspidites, but you're not into the fact that a lot of Womas chew on everything, check out the blackheads. I don't have a single blackhead that bites me. And they take really well to uh, tap training, hook training. You know, if, if you believe in such things as I do, that you can let a snake know that you're not feeding it sometimes. Uh, right. <laughs> they take really well to that. Sure. Um, they strike me as a more intelligent snake overall than a Woma. Um, I know that Nick disagrees with that, but <laughs> in my experience, I would agree they, with you. Yes. They tend to act and, uh, you know, behave a little with a little bit more lights on upstairs than what I've observed from my Womas. So <laughs> yeah, it's always hard to measure that. But in my experience, that is the case. I used to and, say uh, monitor esque, but yeah, they're very aware. They're very cued in on what's going on. Yeah. They have an, a, a very inquisitive nature, which is great for people that want an interactive pet snake, you know, you, that don't want just a pet rock snake. Right. Um, very inquisitive. And like I said, all of mine are, are wonderful uh, to work with, pretty handleable. I've, I have not been bit yet by a blackhead. I've been trying and uh, it, it, it hasn't happened. <laughs> it hasn't so. happened. Take that as you will. Of course, they're individuals. There's going to be ones out there that will try to sure. bite everything, I'm sure. But yeah. by and large, that's my experience with them. And, and and they are the most fulfilling species that I work with at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would agree that they are definitely, you know, the thing is, there's such a unique look to them. You know, you don't, yeah. really, for a python it's to look dropping. like that, it's kind of very, uh, very impressive, you know. Uh, so they like to periscope a lot too, which I always, I always enjoy, you know. Oh, really? I, I never noticed. Yeah. That. Or at least mine. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. Stick That's their cool. heads up. I guess that would make out. sense. Maybe they're sticking their head up out of the burrow. Maybe they're doing something like that right. when they're in there. But yeah. Very yeah. cool. Um, right. 10 out of 10. If you're, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, you know, they are unfortunately a little bit on the pricier side, at least here in the U S I think that's probably just cause they're not as readily produced and we're still kind of figuring them out and they don't lay too many eggs, but, uh, you can definitely get your hands on one if, if, if you want to, they're out there. You just gotta, yeah, there's, uh, quite a few breeders that, uh, are out there that's you know you mentioned jason hood derek roddy um they're, they're, ryan gilmore is uh produced a few years in a row now yeah, um, yeah um, absolutely i know uh guys like justin and nick and mm-hmm. ryan you know work with them they they don't necessarily pump them out as uh yeah. as often as those other guys but uh you could also check them out as well um for sure 
I just wanted to mention um, at the end here, so you could do some further reading, uh, some of the information to where uh, I would recommend, uh, you know, a book to pick up if you wanted to learn more about blackheads. Um, obviously, probably Pythons of the World, Volume One, Australia, Dave and Tracy Barker is probably the, the you know the good one. luck finding that. Though. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, a really good book that I like, and it's more on the captive side, but Keeping and Breeding Australian Pythons. Um, the uh, It's edited by uh, Mike Swan, um, and the chapter on uh, blackheads was uh, Neil, what was his name, Sunniman or something like that? Sunniman or something? Okay. Um, you have uh, Scott and Ty. Uh, they have Snakes of Australia. There's some info in there. Uh, there's Pythons of Australia by Brian Kend. Um, and yes. I got some information from uh, a book that's called The Action Plan for Australian Lizards and Snakes in 2017. Uh, there's some stuff in there. Nice. Uh, and obviously, Google Scholar. You can look up uh, some of the papers that... Uh, 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 oh, yeah. There you go. Pythons of Australia. I also got Australia. some inf of my information from uh, Jordy Tor's Pythons of Australia and yes. a Natural History. Yeah. That's a good one. That's a good one. For sure. Yeah. On a side note, I just got this. Uh, I heard the uh, the Aussie Herp guys talking about this app that you sort of can scan the barcodes of your books into this app. And it sort of like makes yeah. a whole – because I found that like a lot of times that I'll, I'll like, do I have that book? Do I not have that book? And now it sort of catalogs all your, all your, all your books. So That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, pretty cool. Right on. Uh, um, yeah, that's it. So, uh, blackheads, they rule. <laughs> they do rule. And I hope that we're, we're able to, uh, crack some codes and, and learn more about them over the coming decades. And I'm definitely going to be keeping them during that time. So we'll keep talking about them. Yeah. I think, uh, I think maybe, uh, at some point we'll do a uh, carpets and coffee and, uh, maybe have somebody on to, uh, chat about, uh, blackheaded pythons about some of the things that uh, we talked about maybe get uh maybe an australian uh yeah perspective you know a few yeah <laughs> right hopefully hopefully they weren't banging their head against the wall for this whole thing <laughs> no you know i mean again it's it's you know it's a lot of there's not a lot of info there is a lot of information but at the same time not a lot of information of what we're trying to do so there's uh, a lot more for womas that's for yeah. sure hundred yeah, percent. <laughs> cool. Which is a shame. <laughs> Damn it. No love for the Woma. <laughs> yeah. Um, but can't thank you enough for having me on for this one, man. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I uh, appreciate the, uh, the help and, uh, yeah. Till next time. <laughs> do you do a sign off for these ones? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do. I don't remember, but we'll do it. And if I don't, then I'll cut it out. So uh, for us, uh, com. if you want to get in touch with us, if we said something wrong, maybe if you have more information or you have a question or uh, a thought of something that we said, reach out, info at moreliapythonradio.com. Uh, and uh, be sure to subscribe to all the different podcasts that we have. Uh, there's a ton of them now. Uh, so... 
yeah, go over to the website. You'll be able to see all the different ones. Uh, the newest one that we have is uh, Dr. Zach Loafman and uh, Matt Most doing, I'm going to call it CCR. <laughs> Colubrid and Colubrid Radio doesn't do it, it for you. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue the same way that CCR uh, does. <laughs> yeah, they could have named it whatever they want. That's going to be such a good show. Just because yeah, man. The oh, guys involved. Oh, yeah. You can get it up on Spotify right now, and maybe by the time this is up, it'll be up on Apple. Apple takes a little while, but uh, it's up on Google. It's up on Spotify, uh, so you can check it out there. But their first episode is up. I think they're going to do like maybe a monthly, maybe twice a month, something like that. You know, I know Zach, he's kind of a busy guy, so. Very busy, man. <laughs> yeah. So, Loafmeister. Uh, <laughs> yeah, such a smart guy. Us. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, I mean, this natural history uh, NPR stuff is is a little bit based off of a paper he wrote, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. So, credit goes. If you want to dig deeper into what evidence based herpeticulture means, and and adopting a natural history framework, check out that paper by Zach Loafman, twenty twenty. Yeah. Uh, I think we can all improve every aspect of our reptile hobby by by adopting some of those. Uh, mindsets 100% 100% and uh, it only keeps getting better you know keep improving upon right. what we already know so uh, and then uh, yeah follow us on Instagram subscribe to the YouTube uh, check out um, uh, Carpets of Coffee Friday at what are we 7 p.m. Eastern time for, what is it 4, Three, 4 p.m. Pacific, Pacific. Yeah. And it's in the morning in Australia. <laughs> yeah, 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 I was just going to say. Uh, I don't know what time it is, but I know it's the morning. Um, <laughs> and uh, I will say, I will put this out because this will be out Tuesday. This coming Saturday, we're going to do a, a live episode with Mike Stefani uh, nice. from Mike's Monitors. And uh, we're going to be focused on two species of monitors in particular. And it's going to be Ackies and Kimberly Rocks. Oh man, <laughs> that's not fair. That's the two monitors that I would actually get. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to try to approach it from a snake keeper interested in monitors and wanting to take the plunge. Oh no, it's it's even catered to me. Yes. <laughs> this episode is going to be dangerous. And uh, <laughs> it's uh, I think I think it'll be a good show because I think that. A lot of people, including myself, have been hesitant about making that plunge because they're so different. And I think that uh, you will see that it will be worth the plunge. Oh, <laughs> so, boy. But, uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Ackies and Kimberly Rocks. So That's going to be, be so awesome. Should I, be good. I got my hands on it, like in person on a Kimberly Rock for the first time last week, and I'm already obsessed. And oh, man. Brett hatched out three. I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to get the three, man. Woo. They're so I'm pumped. Freaking cool. Yeah. Oh, that'll be awesome. So, yeah, everybody check that out for sure. Um, NPR Network Patreon. Oh, yeah. 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 If about you want to support the podcast, uh, we do have a Patreon. There's a few tiers available. Uh, thank you so much to everybody that does support the shows. It means a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you can check that out. 
uh, did I say subscribe to the YouTube channel? Make sure to do that. I think you did, but it, it bears repeating. Yes. Yeah. Please Plus subscribe to the YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the last thing I always like to say is uh, support US Arc. So if you yes. uh, if you have reptiles, you should be uh, supporting them. That's yes, all I. And if you have cobras, stop losing them, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's your first job. Exactly. Keep it in yeah. the box. <laughs> in the box. Oh man. So. Yeah. For me, uh, you can find me and tell me things uh, anywhere at Centralian Exotic. <laughs> That's uh, Centralian, as in the Centralian Python. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much.